we've come to Acts chapter 9. And I'm calling today's word Paul's job description. And I'm reading from Acts chapter 9 verse 1. Saul continued to terrorise the disciples of the Lord with murderous threats. One day he went to the high priest saying he wanted letters of authorization he could give to those in the synagogues of Damascus, that if he found any followers of Jesus, men or women, he might arrest them and bring them bound as prisoners to Jerusalem. He set off on his journey. When he was almost at Damascus, a great light from heaven shone all around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. It's been hard for you to fight against the prodding of your own conscience. Astonished and shaken up by what had happened to him, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord said, Get up and go into the city and I'll tell you what you have to do. The men who had been travelling with him stood by speechless because they heard a voice but didn't see anyone. Saul then picked himself up off the ground and when he opened his eyes he found he couldn't see a thing. So his companions had to lead him by the hand into Damascus. He stayed blind for three days and neither ate nor drank anything the whole time. The Lord then spoke to a man called Ananias in a vision and said, Ananias, get up and go to Straight Street to the house of Judas and ask for a man called Saul, whom you'll find praying. I've given Saul a vision of a man called Ananias coming in to lay hands on him so that he might get his sight back again. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard about this man from many people and how much evil and destruction he's brought upon the saints in Jerusalem. And he's obtained authority here in Damascus from the chief priests to imprison anyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord answered him, Do what you're told, because he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the nations and before kings and the children of Israel. I want to show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And that's Paul's job description. There's nothing about superannuation or long service leave. This is what he was going to do for the name of Jesus. Ananias did as he was told and went into the house and laid hands upon Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your journey has sent me to you for you to receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Straight away, it was as though scales fell from his eyes and he could see. He stood up and became baptised. Saul's strength returned after he ate some food. He then stayed on for some days in Damascus with some of the disciples. Soon after that, Saul began preaching in the synagogues about Christ being the Son of God. He confounded the Jews in Damascus as he debated with them 
proving that Jesus was indeed the Christ Messiah. What a conversion. At the time of this spectacular conversion account, Saul would have been a man in his 30s and regarded as one of the most promising of the young Jews in Judaism. And he was commissioned as the enforcer against Christians. And for him to switch sides was unthinkable for all parties. He was convinced that Jesus was dead. And now all that remained for him to do was to wipe out as many followers as he could. Finish the course for his purpose. Saul had a purpose in life. He had power over people to judge, condemn and to punish. But meeting the living Jesus on the road to Damascus changed that purpose and the entire course of his life. As it does to all of us who meet the living Jesus. Paul would have now another purpose. He would have power all right. But he'd have power to love and transform and heal the souls of man. Because he writes later to the Corinthians, it's the love of Christ that compels me. Those two powers, the one he used to have and the one he then was given when he was converted, contend for the hearts of mankind to this day. He used to have the power to judge, condemn and to punish. He now had the power to love and to heal and transform the souls of mankind. Saul was led, blinded, into Damascus and didn't eat or drink for three days. When he regains his sight, the first thing he sees is a man whose name is Ananias, which means the grace of God. And the grace of God became his banner of life from that moment on. It's interesting to note that a major part of his job description as Paul, not Saul, is to suffer for Jesus' name's sake. And there are many scriptures describing these sufferings in Paul's letters, but he sums it up quite comprehensively really in the following Verses. I'll read a couple of passages here. First one from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And he says, Concerning those who boast that they're doing God's work in just the same way we are, God never sent those men at all. They're phonies who have fooled you into thinking they're Christ's apostles. They say they serve Christ. But I've served him far more. Have I gone mad to boast like this, he says? I've worked harder than them, been put in jail more often, been whipped times without number, faced death again and again and again. Five different times the Jews gave me their terrible 39 lashes. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was severely pelted with rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I was in the open sea all night and the whole next day. I've travelled many weary miles and have been often in great danger from flooded rivers, from robbers and from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the hands of the Gentiles. I've faced grave dangers from mobs in the cities and from death in the deserts and in the stormy seas and from men who claim to be brothers in Christ but are not. I've lived with weariness and pain and sleepless nights. Often I've been hungry and thirsty and have gone without food. Often I've shivered with cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I don't feel his weakness? Who is made to fall and I'm not consumed with grief? That's a dedicated man. Every experience of suffering that Paul went through became the preface to the revealing of his ministry of life, the life-giving spirit of Jesus. That worked in him. And it worked through him. For Paul, this process is the only valid work of the ministry that God has ordained for us to live as being in Christ, the life-giving work of Jesus through us. Paul is not interested in the dead works of religion, but he was interested in the faith that works by love. Galatians chapter 5, he said, religion means nothing. He said, but it's faith that works by love. That means everything. And that was his intention. That was his revelation. He knew that faith was dead without works. Faith was dead without being energised by the work of the love of God. Paul knew that love was the energy being the releasing of God's creative power. That word, the work of the love of God, and the working of it is energeo, energy. That energy releases God's creative power and God's transforming power into the hearts of mankind. That was all Paul knew what to offer. Paul saw suffering as an opportunity to release that energy and he saw it as being able to overpower the worldly power of unloving energies that opposed that divine power of faith that works by love. He saw what was happening in the world. He had to bring a greater power, a greater energy to overcome that. And this was what God said it was going to be. It's going to be death working in you, but life in them, Paul. That's the way he, he describes it later. The laws of physics describe power. 
as a function of the flow of energy. That's all it is. Ways to measure it. And there's power in the world. It's all about power. There are some ideologies and philosophies that say everything depends on who's got the power. And the world sees the self-determining of purpose and status and meaningful influence in life as a power struggle between competing ambitions and ideologies. It's there in the news all the time. It's in front of us. It's an energy. This power is always at work in politics and in financial corporate identity. This is who I am. And it is a power struggle against somebody's identity and their entitlements as that identity to another's identity, another group. So that power is at work in those things. It's at work in what's culturally relevant. That's a power struggle. And it's at work in religion, the competition, the struggles who's in charge, been raging the battles throughout the centuries. Now, these entities compete for moral high ground and virtue status against each other. But the power struggle is ruthless. See, they have to offer something that's high ground. Attain to this. It's worth having. You can belong to what we've got for you and you will get an identity you'll be on the right side and you'll have power over others but the energy of the power in those ideological power struggles is the same that Saul the Pharisee once lived in it is to judge and condemn and to punish to cancel people out of who they are if they're in opposition of course to what you say is right This is the power that drives today's identity politics and the saving the planet ideologists. People are recruited into joining a noble moral army to fight the evils of what their ideology claims is evil. If you join this army, a recruit is entitled to use whatever means is available to destroy the enemies of their cause. That's become the rules of engagement. Destroy. The recruits can praise themselves for being virtuous saviours of today's culture and their virtue and self-aggrandisement doesn't even mean ever having to do anything productive or sacrificial unless you call destroying statues, desecrating valuable artwork in museums, or disrupting peak hour traffic as being productive or sacrificial. No. All one has to do is to judge and condemn and punish the deniers of the virtuous moral code and turn up for protest marches. That does not build character or productivity. Doesn't heal souls. 
The power brokers and leaders of these power structures embolden the efforts of the deluded recruits whose lives end up producing confusion and disillusionment. I'm saying that strongly because, well, it's because it's true, but I'm saying that because when we look at what energy energises us and gives us a sense of purpose, I would like to know starkly in reality, no blurry lines, I'd like to know what to compare the energy that God's given us. What to compare that with? Is it a power? Are there two powers? I'm asserting today, yes, it is a power struggle. We need to know what the energy is of the power that's there. And don't be afraid. Because what you're not afraid of can't hurt you. Can't hurt you. Not if you know where you're going and what you're energised by and what the outcomes are there that God has promised because of the way Paul took on his job description. I'll show you what sort of things you're going to suffer for my name's sake. But he knew he was going to bring life. He's a man that changed the entire course of history because of the revelation that Jesus gave him. So the world elevates the power of judgment above the power of love. But with Christians, it must not be so. Now, I know it sometimes is, we're not perfect. But we are energised by the power of God's love. God loves and God judges. He's not soft. His love disciplines every one of us. We think, he doesn't love me anymore. Oh yeah, now you know I do love you. He holds everyone to account. He judges, we don't. He holds everyone to account for what they purposed as against what he purposed for their lives. Jesus said, I came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's the Jesus model. The best way for a Christian to overcome sin in the world, and there's a lot of energy going into the world out there, we've got to put that evil down. Well, the best way for a Christian to overcome sin in the world as best they can is to overcome it in themselves as best they can. And then something's happening. Then you have a confidence. You know, you won't be able to say, well, I've... I've got no more sin. No, 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 that's not the point. You know that you're on a journey, a path, because of the way that the Father tells you that he's working on your character, that he's transforming you, changing your heart's desires. He's informing you with new truth and understanding of what is real. And so it's a journey. It's an ongoing, it's an ongoing work of overcoming the sin or the missing of the mark in our lives. It's different for each person. Paul saw that the power of sacrificial love was worth dying for, as it was for Jesus. In Paul's fellowship of the suffering of Christ, he was able to count everything else as loss. Because for him, suffering had meaning and purpose. Look what he went through. 
We may not be invited into such a dangerous and life-threatening journey of suffering as Paul's, with its adventure and misadventure, but we can certainly relate to the other inner sufferings that Paul went through in his soul. He writes about it later on. I don't know anybody who doesn't go through suffering on the inside in their soul. We each suffer differently. There's always a conflict there. A sense of the loss, the grief, the things that have happened. Could have been the failures or the rejection or the injustice. Whatever it is. And coping with being who we are, with the difficulties of life. That's suffering. Paul says this about the inner sufferings which kind of become the suffering of the whole person actually but it starts inside. He said we have this treasure in jars of clay, the earthen vessel, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. So his, his comparison of himself with his energy to what he saw happening out there. He saw the power struggle. He was part of the other power entity. He was part of that power of the world. To judge, to condemn and to punish. He knew that. He said, no. We're not going to be destroyed. He's talking about the inner person. Then he makes this statement. For we who live are always being yielded up to death for Jesus' sake. Oh. The word death Thanatos simply means the loss of life. But Paul goes on to explain it. So that the life of Jesus also will be manifest in our mortal body. So you lose one kind of life attachment to be given a new life. And then... He gives his own job description or outcome of what his ministry is. So then, death is at work in us, but life in you. And that's how he approached everything. I'll go through this, but I know jolly well when I do this, there's an energy flowing through me from God that his love is going through me because I'm saying, I'll accept this. Because something is being generated here that is going to bring life. I'm losing something of, of the old attachments to life, of my self-purposed ideas of what I would like. But I've got new desires now and I'm gaining a new life. That was in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. When we enter into the life of becoming a life-giving spirit with Jesus... That life is imparted by our faith. It doesn't just happen automatically. It's not just thought about or talked about. 
Well, I've got the life-giving power of Jesus somewhere. It becomes something that challenges us, that we consciously become aware of. There's something alive in me, and it's going somewhere. And I'm going to aim it where it's needed. Wow, that's a purpose-driven life. And that life gets ministered into the spiritual atmosphere around us and it's able to touch the spirits of other people. Not automatically. It's a matter of consciously knowing there's something going on. Everything's about power, and power is about the flow of an energy. Well, what's flowing? Oh, wrong energy. Oh, okay, I've got an energy that God's given me by the Holy Spirit. There is a spiritual atmosphere that exists as an unseen reality everywhere in the earth. It's there. I've described it pretty graphically, the power struggle. And Paul decided, above all things, he wanted to, concerning Jesus, know him and the fellowship of his suffering that he might also know the power of his resurrection. He put the two things together. Paul desired above all things for that. He writes that in Philippians chapter 3. And you might think, well, thank you, Paul. You're a special person. You're an apostle. And of course, that's what God asked you to do. Uh-huh. Oh, I'm glad he didn't ask me to do that. Well, we don't have to do anything like that. No, Paul just happened to say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You don't get out of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The life-giving spirit operates through the yielding of our own self-purposed life in order to find our God-purposed life. It's not complicated. And we read from Matthew chapter 16. For whoever would save, it means protect, his self-purposed life will lose it. But whoever loses his self-purposed life for my sake will find his God-purposed life. But it's a matter of knowing that there is such a thing as a spiritual energy, and it's available, it's been granted, we are encouraged to ask for that and to receive it and to live in it and let it change us and to experience the outcomes. And the outcome is life flows and life gets its difficulties and we have our limitations. All of that happens, but the meaning and purpose in going through that is a beautiful outcome of life flowing. So we continue to live with a realistic awareness of our limited outer life and facing life's ongoing difficulties. And at the same time, resting in faith that our God-purpose life, energised by sacrificial love, is continually bringing forth its promise of transformation of our own and of other people's lives beyond our imagination. 
There are no tricks or methods, there's just a reality <laughs> and there's an energy. And that overpowers all other powers of darkness and sin that exists in the world. There's only one power that can do that. There's only a certain bunch of people that are able to release that. We can become the embodiment of the life-giving spirit of Jesus and impart God's life into the spiritual atmosphere around us. This doesn't mean that we look like we're wearing a halo or our feet are just a little bit off the ground at all. It simply means going about life, managing our everyday activities, but coming from a place of faith deep down inside of us that something powerful of the risen life of Jesus in the world of the unseen is bringing his will upon the earth according to his will in heaven and transforming our, transforming, as far as we're concerned, our personal world around us. I'm not going to say that this is transforming the whole world out there, but this understanding deep down inside us brings about the will of God from heaven to transform our personal world in us and around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. As you put this act of faith into operation, you will know that life is being imparted, energy is flowing because it is a power. And as you know that it's coming from God's love, going through you with a heart of serving the needs of the person that you are wanting to see touched by that life. The person may not be in front of you or with you, but they're in your heart of faith and prayer. Know for sure that life is being imparted. If you're with somebody, with a person, you know by faith that life is being imparted because you're not doing it. You're allowing Jesus, who works in the world of the unseen, he is our faith, he is doing it in a way that that person needs it to be done. You're part of his work. That's why we have the partnership. You might wonder, I wonder what this is achieving. Don't get too mixed up with that. God knows. The Holy Spirit has touched you to energise this. He's tugged at your heart to say, make this transaction of an old life that would be more perhaps self-serving at this moment for something that is God-serving and person-serving. 
That's his struggle with us. We yield. God gets a result. If you're with a person and this is happening and you're aware of it by faith, the work of the unseen by faith, the, the evidence of things not seen, which is your faith, then that person that's receiving it may not even feel anything at the time. But do you know what? Something is happening from heaven into their heart and it's not going to go away. It's not like you have to get in touch and say, hey, did you notice anything happening? got nothing to do now with what we try and make happen. It is something you know God is doing. That heart is being challenged by life, the spirit of life. We put that in God's hands and trust him to do his work. The Father will bring about whatever circumstances in that person's life will become a point of decision. And I'm not saying it, it is going to be an absolutely major catastrophic decision. It may be that person will make one small decision that is now empowered by the grace of God and they'll think, why did my heart feel soft then? Why did I just not get into reaction? They won't know it was you, that you were doing something with God. That's how the world gets changed. Not complicated. Just one power working against another for the sake of the souls of mankind, people in your world. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness.